Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. The first question that we have today comes from a question that I was asked a while back about the authority of Scripture. Uh, are there other authorities that we could use? Uh, a lot of times people will look back to tradition or what some early church father said that might have been a different way to look at the scriptures. But the Bible clearly tells us that the Bible is the authority that we are to live by. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. First John tells us, if you say you love him and you don't do what he says, then you're a liar and the truth isn't with you. So this is one of the ways that we know that we are Christians because we want to do what God wants us to do. There's a desire for us to be able uh, to do that. Now, I've got a few scriptures here that I want to show you in the beginning about the importance of the Word of God and um, make sure, all right, looks good. So, and then we're going to go ahead and take questions from you. So if you have questions, we're a little bit early today. Uh, we are in Psych Man, good to see you. Haven't seen you in a little while. We are a little early today. We have a special event tonight. It's a Q&A with Alyssa Childers. Alisa Childers. Uh, we're excited about being able to talk to her about progressive Christianity and um, the cultural uh, differences from Christianity today. And uh, that'll be at six o'clock tonight. So we went ahead and had our Q&A a half an hour early. Uh, now, um, here we go. I wanna show you some scriptures that talk about the authority of the word of God. So this is 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Excuse me, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. I love how there are certain passages that are kind of connected. So you have 2 Timothy 3, 16. We're going to go to it in a minute. And you have 2 Peter 3, 16. It's kind of an easy way to remember these as they speak to us of the authority of Scripture. This says, And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our our beloved brother Paul, according to his wisdom given him, has written to you as also in all the epistles, speaking in them these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So here we have Peter all calling Paul's writings scripture. And he also talks about those who are not rightly dividing the Word of God. So we learn a couple of things from this passage. We learn, first of all, that the New Testament attests that it is Scripture. We also learn that it can be mis mis mishandled. We want to rightly divide the Word of God. We want to compare Scripture to Scripture. We want to learn what it says. We want that, that basic hermeneutic principle, which is, is Bible study, that we are looking for what the passage is telling us rightly handling the Word of God. The last thing that we want to do is mishandle it, and we want to be quick to identify when we have mishandled it so that we don't do it anymore. Now, this is Luke 11, 27 and 28. I like to quote this a lot. Uh, here it says, um, And it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that nursed you. But he said more than that. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. This comes from the words, the lips of Jesus. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And, and again, here we get the authority of the scriptures. Now, in Revelation 3, God is commending the, the faithful church. Listen to what he says to them. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. That's his first commendation. You have a little strength. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Now, you could argue about what keeping his word means, but it's pretty clear what the scriptures say we do. And then it says, because you have kept my command, this is two verses later, this is verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. So he, they were rewarded for keeping the word of God. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear my word, uh, who, who hear the word of God and keep it. So there's a blessing and here they're blessed that they will be kept from the hour of testing that will come upon the whole earth. Now, here's a passage that I quote a lot. 
I wanted to write it down and I want to go from 15 to, to, to 17, but I want to read 16 and 17 first. And remember, we looked at 2 Peter 3.16. Now we're going to look at 2 Timothy 3.16, which tell us about Scripture. Here it says, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice some of these words complete, thoroughly equipped, instruction in righteousness, correction, doctrine, reproof. This means God's word is, is all we need. This is sola scriptura. This passage here helps us to understand that God's word has authority and it is all we need for all of these things that are listed here, doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, com being complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We might need some other information to learn how to treat an illness, a doctor may need it, but what we need for life and righteousness, all of that comes from the Word of God, and there is nothing more that we need. Let me give you another passage. Uh, this is right before it. This is 2 Timothy 3.15, and here Paul is encouraging Timothy, and he says, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood, he had known scripture. And again here, we get the idea that we are to rightly divide the word of God. Uh, we could talk about some other areas that point to the authority of scripture. We could look at Jesus as he is tempted and how every time he comes back to the word of God and how Satan mishandles the word of God. We could go to Eve's temptation and see how Satan mishandled the word of God and then she mishandled the word of God and she fell into temptation. And the Bible says in Psalms 119, your word keeps us from sinning. And so we see the importance of having that high view of the word of God, of going to it with respect, believing that it is the word of God. We also have great confidence that what we have today is God's word. Uh, there is a science called textual criticism and it's not just for the Bible, it's for any manuscripts before they before the printing press being able to take and compare and contrast manuscripts. And the confidence that we have from that comparing uh, different manuscripts is incredibly high. We also know like for the examples, well, for the Gospels, for an example, that they get the cultural, excuse me, they get the cultural day uh, things that were happening during the days of Jesus right and that's why when people had made accusations that they were written hundreds of years after the fact no scholars believe that because they wouldn't have been able to get all of the details right and the Bible's full of details in the Old Testament and the New Testament so it is the authority by which we live and because the Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith not of works lest any man should boast because we're told that we are kept by God through faith. All of these things tell us how we have a relationship with God, how we walk with him, how we please him, what is required of us. Uh, we, we go to the scriptures to find all of these things and it is so powerful how complete and total they are. And it's really important for us to know what they were written, who said them, what they were written to, what did the people who heard it think that they meant? All of these things help us to really come to a strong understanding of the authority of God's word. So yes, God's word is our authority. And the Bible has been attacked over the, the centuries and it still stands. And there's stronger evidence today for the reliability of scripture than at any other time. And um, we could talk about textual criticism at some other point. Uh, we could talk about variance in scripture and all of those things. Um, but I want to get into your questions now. So good to see you guys. And we have Psych Man with us first. Psych Man 45, uh, you're back in, uh, back in the States? Just wondering. A Psych Man says, David said to be a man of God. Um, so David said to be a man of God's own heart. Next uh, to Saul. Yeah, we do see a more godly heart but next to daniel and joseph now david does deserve this honor now how does david deserve this honor god prefers hearts 
over obedience, right? Which is what Samuel, thanks to Psych Man, I appreciate that, which is what Samuel had said to Saul, David's predecessor, because Saul did not destroy the Amalekites completely, but had kept the king for himself. And when Saul asked him, have you completely wiped out the Amalekites? He said, um, I've done it. And he says, then why do I hear cattle lowing to my ear? They're supposed to wipe out all the cattle of the Amalekites. And he says, well, I've kept them to sacrifice to God. And, and that's when Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice, that idea of obedience to sacrifice. So here we're looking at the heart of David. We're, we're not looking at the actions of David but we're looking at his heart. Now, as, a, as in as a man heart, as, as in a, a man speaks out of the things that are in his heart. And David wrote many Psalms, many of the Psalms that we find to be very powerful and beautiful. Psalms 23, um, Psalms 22. Now God used him in powerful ways. Now inside of our hearts are all kinds of evil and wickedness, the Bible says. And that was true with David's heart as well. And David found himself in a place that, praise God, we are not in, a place that God didn't want him in, and that is to be king, because God didn't want them to have a king. He wanted to be king over them. And he knew that being in a position of power, of complete and total authority, brings out the worst in people. We have a saying in our day, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we would like to think, well, that's not true. You get a person, the right person, and that will not happen. The statement that David is a man after God's own heart doesn't mean that David is like God in every way. It's been misread, misconstrued to mean that. And people do uh, blaspheme God because of David. And God said that they would do that. But it doesn't mean that David was beyond corruption or beyond falling into thinking that he was someone special or that, um, that he could do whatever he wanted to do and it would be okay. We see that this happens all of the time, but that doesn't mean that someone's heart is not after God's heart. It means that they're sinful. It means they have a sin nature. The extent to which David fell was, 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 was horrible and was to an extreme Nevertheless, it doesn't say, it doesn't mean he didn't have a heart after God, especially when he was younger. Now, when you study the life of David, psych man, you get to the place where he, he sins with Bathsheba and murders her husband, Uriah. And a year later repents by Nathan and God doesn't kill him, but the child dies. And from there on out, David's life is, is pretty miserable. And it has to do with and it has to do in the area of women, right? And David married several women when we could make, when God told kings not to multiply wives, but David did it anyway. And it had to do in the area of women. So David was disobedient in the area of women. And, you know, the Bible says we're going to reap what we sow. And the same is true even with a man that has a, a heart after God's heart. He's going to start sowing in certain areas and he's going to reap in those areas. And David was also a warrior and was used to killing. And uh, David set off to kill Abigail's husband. And was it right that he was going to set off to kill him because of the insult that had been suffered from it? And Abigail intervenes and God ends up taking care of things. But that, that David was a man after God's own heart doesn't mean he was a perfect man and that he could handle all that would come with being a king. There were very few who could. Uh, Joseph seems to be one of them, right? He was in a position of second only to the king in, <laughs> excuse me, that's funny, that doesn't usually happen um, when you're teaching. I rarely ever sneezed from the pulpit or, or, or even teaching here in front of this. Um, but anyway, excuse me. Uh, so Joseph was had second in command and he seemed to be able to maintain that relationship with God. But there's nobody who thinks that Joseph was perfect. Uh, the um, Daniel, um, again, had, had achieved high things and, and, and was able to make a good stand. So it tells us that seeking God 
that we can achieve high things and that we don't have to fail. And I think Samuel, Daniel, and Joseph are signs of that. Not saying those three guys were perfect because we know that they weren't, but they're signs that we can live towards God and not have major failures in our lives. And I think that you would agree that everybody has failures. There's nobody that doesn't. And so the Bible is doing this thing where it promises the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3, 15. And then, um, and then we start seeing kind of heroes come on the scene. Noah, but Noah fails. And then Abraham, but Abraham fails. And then Saul, but Saul fails. And then David, but David fails. And, and he did, the story just continues to go on. They all have aspects of who that Messiah, Savior could be, but no one triumphs completely until Jesus Christ. And when he comes on the scene, he is the fulfillment of the promise. Everybody else failed. And um, to break the law in one part is to like break it in the whole thing. And God was certainly did bring difficulty into David's life. And even near the end of his life, he still seemed to have this struggle with women as they brought a young girl to him to warm him in his bed. And it doesn't say that anything inappropriate was was happening there, but why not well, one of his wives? Why, why do that? And so there seems to be problems. So was David worthy of being called that? Probably not. But by God's grace, he was. And are we worthy of what God has called us to? We are, we are a kingdom of priests. We are heirs together with Christ. We are, we are seated in heavenly places with him. Are you and I worthy of those things? And I think the answer would be no. I know I'm not. Maybe you, psych man, but not me. And I, I, I know you would agree that you're not worthy of that as well. And so if we in Christ are called things that we're not worthy of, then seeing someone in the Old Testament who receives honor when they don't deserve it is, is grace. And we're seeing a strong picture of God's grace. All right. So, so thank you, Psych Man. And welcome back, by the way. Uh, we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you. I'm glad you guys were able to find us early. Uh, we have a few less people on than we normally do. Uh, so um, we'll probably get a few more popping on at four o'clock going, what happened? You guys have been going for a half an hour. Uh, they'll be able to come back and catch this later. But it is good to be able to be here and uh, and, and interact with one another. Uh, Jari says, if, if Jesus was in the grave, Sheol, did people have a chance to repent? If Jesus preached the gospel to them uh, like purgatory before purgatory was created by the Catholics? Thanks. Um so he preached to he preached to the spirits that were bound in chains so and i'm trying to think of what that where that passage is at um where he says that let me see if i can take a minute to find that i won't take too long to look but i think i can find it yeah i can find it here um all right, let's just take a look at these couple of passages here talking about what Jesus was doing in between the his burial and his resurrection. And so we believe that he descended and ascended, bringing a host of captivities captive. So ascending, meaning down into the grave and bringing back Abraham and David and all of those who were not in the presence of God because Jesus had not died on the cross yet. And so then he brought them up into the presence of God. And then here in, and then here it says, let's get over here, um, in Jude 1, 6, and the angels who did not keep their proper dominion, but left their own abode, he has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then in 1 Peter 3, 19, sees we talking about the same group here, but by, um, but by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who were formerly disobedient when the once divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So the spirits that he preached to were the spirits who were disobedient. It wasn't the spirits of men who could have had a chance to repent, but instead the spirits of those who had been disobedient. So 
No, I don't believe that Jesus was was going to hell and then giving people an opportunity. I think the passage that tells us it's it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment tells us that that window of grace closes when we die and we enter into the presence of God. And however we've responded to the light that we have been given uh, it is going to determine uh, what's going to happen to us. Um, so we have uh, Keith sharing that we have Elisa Childers with us tonight. Uh, she is an apologist and um, was in the group Zoe Girls. Zoe Girl, we're going to be having a Q&A, an interview, a Q&A with her tonight. Uh, there'll be a number up on the screen. Uh, we'll start at, our services at 6. We'll start about 6.10 or so, um, taking questions and interviewing her and um, I really look forward to that tonight. I think it's going to be great. She was with our women's ministry last night, Abiding Women at Calvary Tucson. And um, so many women were really blessed by her. Um, and uh, so we have a question here from Maria. Uh, Maria, I think that we um, answered one of your questions last time. Maria says, I accepted our Lord on New Year's Eve. That's great. Uh, congratulations. I was reborn and had sinned horribly will the Lord forgive me and still accept me? All right, let me read this again. Um, yes, um, Maria, let's just take a few minutes to talk about this. Do you remember how much compassion Jesus had on the woman who came into Simon the Pharisee's house? Jesus had been invited over to Simon the Pharisee's house. And when rabbis would get together, and Jesus was a rabbi, Simon the Pharisee was a rabbi, the crowds, people would come in, line the, the room at the table, and listen to the discussion of the rabbis trying to learn something. A woman came in and cried at the feet of Jesus. Uh, it, they would have been reclining while they ate, their feet would have been behind them. And this woman came in and wept at the feet of Jesus and, and cried on his feet and wiped his uh, feet with her hair. And Simon said, if this, if this man were the Messiah, he would know what kind of woman this was that touched him and wouldn't let him do it. So she was a loose woman. Many believe that she was a prostitute and that she was weeping over the things that she had done. And Jesus said, Simon, I have a question for you. Without knowing what Simon, knowing what Simon was thinking, without Simon saying anything, Simon, I have a question for you. Who loves more, the one forgiven much or the one forgiven a little? And he said, well, the one forgiven much. And so he said, and so this woman will love much. He had forgiven her. He had compassion on her and she would love much. Now, some have taken this to think, well, then I'm going to go out and sin a bunch. So I'll love Jesus more. That's the exact wrong approach. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Romans 6.1 says, may that never be. But I think all of us have enough sin in our past and even sin in our lives as Christians, that we can receive the incredible grace of God. God has been so gracious to me, Maria. God has been so, is that, that is your name, right, Maria? Yeah, God has been so gracious to, to, to me. God has been so gracious to you. The love of Christ abounds. Jesus saw people, um, Jesus saw people who were bound. Let me, let me read this. I, I wrote this tweet out the other day. And um, let me just see if I can find it really quick, uh, because I really think, and um, and we had some we had some good responses to it. Oh, well, yeah. Let me. I'm, I'm gonna take a moment to find this. All right. Um, let me get to this. Let's see if I can find this quickly. Okay. Maybe I won't be able to find it quickly. I might just have to speak of it off the top of my head. All right, here we go. So this is a tweet that I put out um, well, just yesterday. It says, um, the heart of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus saw people in sin as being bound or in chains to it. He was called a friend of sinners and delighted in showing compassion to those ensnared by it. And that is just such a true statement. He delighted in being a friend of sinners and in sending people those who were bound by it. Um, Maria, think of the woman at the well and the compassion and love that Jesus showed her. 
She had had five husbands. The man she was living with at that moment was not her husband. And yet he showed her a tremendous amount of compassion. And she is the first person that he revealed himself as the Messiah to. Now, we do our best to walk in the sanctification that God has given us once we've committed our life to him. And as a baby Christian, there are certain struggles that you may be going through and that you will get out of the way as you continue to walk with him. So I want to give you a whole hearty yes to your question. Uh, will the Lord forgive and accept you? Yes, he's going to forgive you because he says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just. He's faithful to do it. That's a promise to you, Maria, that he is faithful to forgive your sins and just in doing so because Jesus took the wrath of God for you because you died on the cross and now you are no longer bound to it. And the life that you now live, you live to him. You are now living for Christ. You are a new person. It's a brand new start. It's a fresh start. And you say, well, then what if I blow it again? What if I blow it now? I'm, I'm not perfect. Well, none of us are. And that's why it says in 1 John 1, 4, if anyone, if, yeah, 1 John 1, if anyone says they have not sinned, then they're a liar. And then 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That cleanse us from all unrighteousness is that ongoing sanctification process. Now, that's a big word, sanctification, meaning that when I am born again, positionally before God, I am sanctified, set apart by him, holy, pure, clean. And that God has, according to Ephesians chapter 1, predestined me that I would be holy and pure before him. Now, just think about that. God's predestined you and me that we would be holy and pure before him, which is absolutely amazing. That's, that's our destiny. That's our future. Robert Furrow, who struggles with sin, is one day going to be holy and pure and clean, totally, in Christ, and so is Maria. And not only is God going to accept you, but he's going to do that incredible work for you. All right. So um, hopefully that's helpful. Um, I can't, I, I don't know that I can say it any stronger than I've already said it, that God accepts you. And the enemy is going to try to get you to think that you're not worthy and that you're not good enough to be able to receive the gift that God's given. But that's, it's the truth. And that's why he's so condemning by it, because I'm not worthy of anything that God's done for me. But but it's the grace of God, which is undeserved favor. We are saved by grace, not because I deserve anything, but by the grace of God, because of faith, because I put my trust in the Savior. And, and he saved us, and now we walk with him. And when we blow it, let me just give you this bit of advice, Maria, in walking with the Lord as a new believer. Keep short accounts with Jesus. Don't let a long time go on. If you blow it and sin, if it's even little things, you know, you end up gossiping about someone and you're convicted about it. You end up um, uh, losing your temper and screaming at your children or, or, or whoever, or maybe somebody in traffic. Then immediately just repent from it. Just repent from it right, right away. Learn to keep that, oh, that communication between you and God open all of the time by repenting of what are, are real sins, and he's going to work righteousness out in your life. All right, so thank you very much, Maria. I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Kevin. So Kevin, is the first time here, I think it might be. Good to see you. Good to have you here. Kevin says, if the Holy Spirit was not given until after Jesus ascended, then how did David in the book of Psalms know the Holy Spirit and said to God in the book of Psalms, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Yeah, that's uh, Psalm 51. Was the Holy Spirit given to David in the Old Testament? Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate that. Uh, it's a good, astute question. Um, so Jesus told the disciples, I'm, I'm going away. And if I don't go away, I can't send the Holy Spirit back to you. So the Holy Spirit will come and he will speak and direct you of me and he'll bring you to remembrance all the things that I've spoken, which was important for these apostles because they were going to be writing the scriptures. They needed to have it. So yes, the way the Holy Spirit related to, to people changed at the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. 
Uh, we will be in the book of Acts after we're in the book of Luke on our weekend services, and we'll be looking at the ascension of Jesus. And we'll be talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit by his ascension. He goes and the Holy Spirit comes down. Why is this different than the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, prophets, kings, priests receive the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Samson, uh, judges, Samson had the Holy Spirit leave him. He had the Holy Spirit, but he had the Holy Spirit leave him. Saul had the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit left him. David had the Holy Spirit and asked that the Holy Spirit wouldn't leave him after his sin with Bathsheba. So the Holy Spirit wasn't poured out on all flesh. And then in Joel, there was a promise that in the last days, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh. And so when the day of Pentecost came and the Holy Spirit came upon them uh, in on Pentecost and the people thought they were drunk, Peter said, we're not drunk, it's only nine in the morning. But this is what the prophet Joel said, that in the last days, he's gonna pour his Holy Spirit on all flesh. Now we learned a couple of things from that application. We learned that we're now in the last days and have been since the time of Pentecost 2000 years ago. This is the last age, the church age. The church age will be done and then the end will be here, the last seven years that we have coming. We also learn that by all flesh, he meant that everyone who was in the church, that every believer would be filled with the Holy Spirit. No longer was the Holy Spirit just gonna be given to kings and judges and prophets, but now the Holy Spirit was gonna be given to everyone. And so everyone in a relationship with Christ has the Holy Spirit with them. And so Jesus left, I think partially so the focus could be on the work of the Spirit in our lives. And the Holy Spirit would remind us of Christ. And so it doesn't make sense that the Holy Spirit would have the work of reminding us of Jesus if Jesus was still with us. He left so the Holy Spirit could indwell us and we would receive power to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. You go through the book of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit coming upon people to empower them. And I believe the Holy Spirit comes upon us today to do the work that God has called us to do. And so there is a difference from them. So yes, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's relationship with people was different, but it didn't mean he didn't come upon people. He did he would come upon them and he would leave. You and I in Christ, when we have a genuine relationship with him, Kevin, then we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. And, and God has done a, a genuine, real work within us. And we have the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit, which means every person that becomes a Christian has the Holy Spirit. Now, not every whole person that, ha that has received the Holy Spirit has the Holy Spirit come upon them, empower them. And I think that's the best way to put it. You can talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We were all baptized by the Spirit into Christ, the Bible says. That's not water baptism. That's just baptism. Um, baptism doesn't mean water baptism. It means to be immersed. And so sometimes it obviously references water baptism, but other times it references being immersed in the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. So we all receive the Holy Spirit. We also know that in Samaria, the Samaritans had received Christ, but they hadn't been baptized in the Holy Spirit because they say we were only baptized into Christ. And so it seems that this second experience of the Holy Spirit, this empowering this upon, was referred to as a baptism. I would say that they were baptized into the family of God the moment they became a Christian, then they were baptized in water out of obedience and a picture of the old man being buried and rising up in the newness of life that God had given them. But then they were empowered again by the Holy Spirit. So there was a change in the relationship with the Holy Spirit between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I hope that's helpful, Kevin. Uh, if you have a follow-up question, I would love um, to answer that follow-up question if you have one. All right. So thank you very much. Uh, so it's now four o'clock when we normally have our uh, Q&A. I uh, scheduled a little bit early. Sorry for those of you who missed out on the first half of the Q&A. Uh, you can go back and catch it later. Uh, but we have a special service tonight. I wanted to get done a little bit early, be able to arrive at church a little early tonight. So um, Ezekiel 18.20, this is uh, Kimberly. Kimberly, good to see you. Uh, Empress Kimberly says, uh, Ezekiel 18.20, a teacher used this verse to say, we actually are not born with the sin nature after the fall, 
and that's a common misconception. Sin nature only appears in NIV thoughts. Um, yeah, uh, Kimberly, this is this is not something that people are just now beginning to talk about and debate. This is something that has been hashed out in church history from the second and third century. And it's still a debate today when you look at Calvinism. For Calvinism talks about us being totally depraved. And I agree with total depravity in the sense that I am prone to sin. I, I agree with that. However, uh, a Calvinist will say that you you can't you you're dead like yeah, depraved unless God brings you to life you can't come to life through Christ, which doesn't make any sense. But but this was a debate all the way back then. People believing that we didn't have a sin nature and people believing that we that we are, do have a sin nature. What happened to Adam and Eve when they fell, and now they knew good from evil? Why did Adam and Eve make? make fig leaves to try to take fig leaves, try to cover themselves because they knew that they were naked. So these are questions. If there's no sin nature, these are questions that we have to ask. Now let's take a look at your passage here. It is Isaiah 18, 20. Thank you for putting the reference in there. I get it. Did I get the reference wrong? Ezekiel 18, 20. I'm like, there is no Isaiah 18, 20. That's because you're looking in the wrong place. So let's go to Ezekiel 1820. Um, okay. There we go. Almost there. Ezekiel 2018. <laughs> Ezekiel 1820. I just laugh because of how often I'll, I'll get those things wrong. Ezekiel 1820. And here we are. Um, huh, I got it highlighted in my Bible. So let me bring it up here um, for you. And you can see here that I have highlighted it, that as I was reading through the Bible, it just struck me. Uh, it says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon them. So let's read on a little bit further. But if the wicked man turns from all of his sins, which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he will surely live and not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because righteousness, which he has done, shall live. Uh, do I have any pleasure at all in the death, in the wicked, that the wicked should die, says the Lord but not that they should turn from their ways and live. But when the righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations wicked men does, uh, shall he live? All the righteous which he has done shall not be remembered, but the unfaithfulness which he is guilty and the sin by which he has committed because uh, of them he shall die. Now let's just go back here. Sorry to bring this so quickly back past you. I just want to read a couple verses in front of it. Verse 19, this is right before the verse 18 you gave me. Yet you say, why should you know, the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and kept all the statutes and observed them. He shall surely live. And then he goes on to say that they're not going to punish the son for the father or the father for the son. All right. This passage has absolutely nothing to do with sin nature. Um the it's talking about if a father sins you don't punish the son that that god's not going to punish somebody for what they they're going to punish the wicked for what the wicked do and even if the righteous start and do wickedly he's going to punish the righteous who do wickedly and he's going to punish them as well so it's a complete misapplication and i think i see how he would try to get there or how this teacher would try to get there they'll try to get there by saying so Adam and Eve could not pass along a sin nature because he's not going to punish the, the sons for the sins of the father. And since Adam um, and Eve sinned, then how, 
how is, uh, is he not going, how is he gonna um, not punish the children for that sin that Adam and Eve did? But here's the thing, Adam and Eve fell into sin. They now had a sin nature and we all have it. And that's the reason that there can be no one who doesn't sin. And that is, I mean, I think it's 1 John 4. I'm gonna go there and read this because I think this is so important for us to really under understand that. Um, so if if everybody is 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 sins and no one is righteous, let me see if I got it here. Um, All right, here we go. So I want to bring this up on the screen here. Um, because you're assuming that if we don't have, if we aren't born with the sin nature, that we would be able to be without sin. And they're probably trying to teach um, the holiness movement, which I was a part of for a while, which says that you can get to the point where you don't sin anymore. The problem with that is we sin without even knowing it. We, we, we just have our little things, pet things that we come up with that we think are okay. So this is John 1 8, 1 John 1 8. And it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the person who says they don't have sin is deceived. They are deceiving themselves. And so I don't believe that that can be, that we could say that that could be that we are without a sin nature. Now, there's a lot of debate about what exactly that sin nature is and what it does and how it works. And, and uh, theologians argue about it, but let the theologians argue about it. You cannot use the verse out of Ezekiel, uh, Kim, uh, uh, Kimberly, to say that we don't have a sin nature, that God was unjust by bringing sin, the sin nature into the world through Adam and Eve. He punishes us for our own sins. He's not punishing me because of the sin of Adam, I have an opportunity to walk righteously before him, especially after I come to Christ. Um, there's a way of escape provided for me, according to the Bible, no temptation has overtaken you, but with the temptation, he will provide a way of escape. In, first, in, in Romans 6, it says that I have died with Christ and now I am no longer a slave to sin. So I have a way out of every single sin, but it doesn't mean that I don't sin. I sin in ways that I don't even know that I'm sinning. And, and, and God's punishing me for my sin, not for Adam's sin. If I, if I am judged, if I don't, if I don't receive the sacrifice of Christ upon the cross, then it's, it's for my sin that I'm being judged for, not for my dad's sin or for Adam's sin. And this is really important. So if you have more questions about that, Kimberly, if that isn't really clear, um, then go ahead and ask a follow-up and uh, we will look into that further, all right? So if you're new here and you're visiting with us, we're really glad to have you here. If you have a question, then write the word question and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense and put the uh, the reference, the Bible reference, if, you're, if you quote one, so that we can take time to look at it. Because oftentimes looking at the context, context is king. And oftentimes looking at the context gives us the answer to the things uh, that we are talking about now. All right, so it is good to see you guys. And I wanna just kind of remind you of a couple of things. Uh, this is, this, this uh, Q&A is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Tucson. So uh, we do this every week. And if you have questions about a video we put out, or you have questions about uh, a teaching that we've done, this is a perfect place to ask those questions, or perhaps even to point out that I've been wrong, that what I said wasn't right because of another passage. And uh, we can discuss those things. And I would, and, and I love to do that. Um, we can also, you can also ask any questions that you want to about apologetics or prophecy or the Christian life or maybe struggles or doubts or whatever it is that you may be going through. That's what we do here. That's why uh, we do this Q&A. And my hope is, like with Maria, that a lot of new believers would know that we have this Q&A and um, that we might be able to help you as you navigate those early days of walking with Christ. 
Now, we have a question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, hello, Pastor. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul writes of the thorn in the flesh. Some seem to interpret this verse uh, to uh, it can apply to sin, such as a thorn of addiction or anger. Is this a correct interpretation? I do not believe that it is, um, Albert, and I'll show you why, but let's go ahead and go there. So let's go to 2 Corinthians, make sure I get this one right for the first time, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. Okay, um, so let's just read what Paul says here. All right, go ahead and put this down here, and we'll go ahead and read what Paul says here. So Paul says, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul calls them infirmities. This is the, the Greek word that we get infirmary from. Infirmary is a place where you put sick people. This is not some sin. It is a sickness, which is pretty, it, it's interesting when you think about it, because Paul was able to heal people. But it seems like at some one point, Paul told Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. But another point, Paul was sending his handkerchiefs to people and they would pray for them as a point of faith for them to receive it and to be healed. But he himself had an infirmity. We see it twice here, right? And then when he talks about in his weakness, uh, for when I am weak, I am strong. Now, what could this infirmity have been? And I think that we can have a little bit of understanding as to exactly what that infirmity was. Because Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said to them, we wanted to go to Asia but God didn't allow us, the Holy Spirit refrained us, and I preached the gospel to you because, um, because the Holy Spirit stopped us and, and you would have given your eyes to us. And I think that he talks about, I think he talks about, I, I, I'm not exactly sure where that's at, um, but he says, you would have given your eyes to me. And then at the end of the book of Galatians, he says, see with what great letters I've, letters I've written to you. He's talking about the size of the letters. So it says, this is my own handwriting. So it seems that Paul had an eye disease. And historians will tell us that he, he had bulgy, watery eyes, and that this seemed to maybe be one of the reasons. He says, in person, when I'm speaking, it seems weak because he had this infirmity. But God was able in his weakness to bring in strength. Um, I don't know where they try to get that this in any way, shape, or form uh, is sin. It it, it, there's nothing in here that could make you think that he's talking about some kind of sin. Um, this is a messenger from Satan, so somehow Satan is buffeting him. Um, but it's not, and, and God's grace is sufficient. Um, and I'm going to be made perfect in weakness. So it's in his weakness that he's made perfect. There's nothing in here that I would see to make me think that that was the proper interpretation of this passage. Uh, Paul had some kind of sickness, um, which is what infirmity means. And uh, there's nothing in the text that would make us think that Paul's talking somehow in some kind of an allegory. All right, Albert, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate that. Now, if you're joining us for the very first time, really good to have you here. Uh, if you have a question, then you can write the word question uh, in front of it, our question mark. Write your question out, make reread it, make sure it makes sense, um, and then go ahead and submit uh, that question. All right. A couple of things that we're doing now. Um, we are in our study of the book of Revelation, and we are about to start chapter six, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. And that is the beginning of the tribulation period. Six through 18 or six through 19 is the, is the tribulation period. It's the, it's the darkness that comes upon the earth. It's the wrath of the lamb being poured out. And we're gonna be talking about a lot of the controversial issues now that we're starting chapter six. 
we have the first chapter of Revelation that has a vision of Jesus. You have chapters two and three, which are the letters to the church. You have chapters uh, four and five, which is the heavenly vision by which the scroll, which we looked at as being the title deed of the earth, the redemption scroll, because he's our, he's our kinsman redeemer, and the judgment scroll, and he's going to open up all seven of those seals, and then the kingdoms of the earth are going to become the kingdoms of God sometime in the tribulation period, and we're going to be covering all of those things that happen. We're going to be talking about the 144,000, the, the Antichrist, the rebuilt temple, uh, 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 the uh, mystery Babylon, the beast, all of those things in Revelation we'll be covering over the next few months uh, as we dive into the book of Revelation. Uh, this week um, on Sunday will be our hundredth study in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 23. We're going to start talking about the resurrection, but we've done a hundred studies in the book of Luke. And so we're going to continue on um, with that by talking about uh, the resurrection. Tonight, we have uh, Elisa Childers with us on an interview, a Q&A. She was a Zoe girl. Um, she's an apologist. She wrote a book called Another Gospel, which is a real good book about her crisis of faith. And, and how she came out of that crisis of faith, and it includes progressive Christianity. Um, that was what brought about her crisis, and we're going to learn a lot about progressive Christianity tonight. And also, um, she wrote another book called um, Know Your Own Truth and Other Lies, where she just talks about lies of our culture, that our culture ends up believing that really go against the word of God. And so I'm sure we'll be talking about those and you will have a, an opportunity to be able to ask questions. There will be a number up on the screen. You'll text your question in. We can't guarantee that we're gonna get um, of all of those questions. If you wanna get a jump on it, then go to calvarytucson.com. You'll be able to click on that event and there's a place there that will give you that number and uh, be able to show you uh, that you'll be able to write in your question um, as we go through our Q&A tonight. All right. So um, I uh, and we're, we're, we're done with the questions here now. I'll give it a couple more minutes as I close things out. If I see another question coming in, uh, then I'll take time to answer that. Um, but it looks like we're, we're done for today. Uh, remember, this is a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary uh, Tucson. And uh, we desire to be able to have clarity. And I love being able uh, to interact with you guys. And I love the way uh, that you guys are able to interact as well. And I like how you guys keep it on point. It's so easy to not be on point. Um, so uh, we do have a question that's come in from... Oh, boy, boy. Uh, I'm going to butcher your name. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just not even going to try. We have a question that's come in that says, what do APC, so that's the Apostolic Pentecostal Church, I think, um, why do APC teach speaking in tongues is required for salvation? I don't know all of the history of the Apostolic Pentecostal, I think, um, I think that's that's what it is. But I, I, APC, I don't know all the history of APC. Um, I was involved in Assembly of God churches when I was a teenager. Uh, when I was newly married, uh, we went to Chowood Park Foursquare, which is a Pentecostal church. And these two are pretty solid Pentecostal churches, but you could still find those in there who would teach that you had to speak in tongues in order to really be saved, which, of course, is not biblical. In fact, the opposite is true. Uh, the Bible tells us um, that not everybody speaks in tongues. And let me see if I can get to that passage for you. Uh, let's see. Um, all right, yeah, here we go. So let me just go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. Thank you uh, for your question. I appreciate it. Sorry, I just don't even want to try to make an attempt at butchering your name. All right. So here is uh, 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to start in verse 27. He says, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, teachers, after that miracles, then gifts and healings and helps and administrations and variety of tongues are all apostles. Now, what's the answer to that? No. Are all prophets? What's the answer to that? No. Are all teachers? What's the answer to that? No. 
Are all workers of miracles? What's the answer to that? No. Do all have gifts of healings? What's the answer to that? No. Do all have tongues? What's the answer to that? No. Do all interpret? What's the answer to that? No. He didn't stick a yes into the middle of this. It would break up the flow of everything he was saying. But he says, but earnestly desire the best gift. And yet I will show you a more excellent way. Earnestly desire the best gift that's going to that's going to bless the body. You say, well, what's the best gift? And people will say, well, it's tongues. Tongues is the best gift. Well, of all these things that have been mentioned, why is tongues considered to be the best gift? The best. If somebody said to me, what size shoe do you wear? And I said, nine and a half. And they said, hey, that's what I wear too. Can I borrow a pair of shoes? Well, yeah, but what are you going to be doing with them? You're going to be playing tennis. I have some tennis shoes. You're going to be, you're going to be, you know, teaching. I've got some shoes that I wear to teach some nicer shoes that I teach in. Now uh, you're going to go out for a run. I've got some shoes that I would run in. I don't run anymore. I would only run if I was being chased by a bear. That's the only time I run anymore, but I've got, you know, you get my point. There are shoes that are made for specific things. What would be the best gift for me as a teacher? It would be the gift of teaching. That's the best gift for me to have. Now, I also believe that God has given me the gift of discernment. I also hope that I have the gift of evangelism. So I think that there can be a cluster of gifts that can be given, but not all Christians speak in tongues. And to make that salvation ends up making it, ends up making it works, right? You, God says we are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, lest anyone should boast. And so it's not of works. And so if you say you've got to speak in tongues to be saved and you've turned it into works and anything you add to salvation ends up turning it into works and that becomes a major problem. All right, we have just a few more minutes, um, but we have a question from Jari again. Jari says, Pastor Robert, look up Azusa Street Revival. That's where you will find out the history of the Pentecostals. They believe the gift stopped for a time and the second outpouring of Joel is now. Yeah, uh, thanks, Jari. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, very familiar with the beginning of the Pentecostal movement that came out of the Azusa Street Revival. Um, very familiar with what you're talking about um, with um the guys that started this whole movement, some of the abuses that were there, also with what is called the great Pentecostal disappointment, that when they began speaking in tongues, they thought they were speaking languages. Uh, one person particularly thought they were speaking Chinese, and they, they went to China. There are several of them that thought they were speaking Chinese. They went to China, and they were going to preach the gospel in tongues, only to find out that it wasn't a language, that none of what they were speaking was a known language. And so they ended up tweaking what they believed about tongues. Um, and they used the passages on the early and the latter rain to talk about the early um, outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the latter outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And many believe that in, in um, the early 1900s, that was the latter rain that was poured out. And um, I don't, I'm not sure that it has come that way, all that way. But I don't know that this is APC. Okay, so there are within the Pentecostal movement, there are all of these different denominations and groups. And some of them are more radical than others. And some of them even hold to what we would consider to be cult-like views of Jesus. They deny the deity of Jesus, the sonship of Christ. And I'm just not familiar with APC. I'm familiar with Foursquare. I'm familiar with Assembly of God. I'm familiar with Amy Simple McPherson. I'm familiar with the the the, the preachers who preached um, uh, C.R. Riley. Um, the, the preachers who preached um, back in the Azusa Street Revival uh, in the early 1900s. I'm familiar with all of that, but I, I'm not sure about APC. So um, I could take some time to look it up and to see what kind of a group they are and what they believe. But if what was really said was true, that they teach that you speak in tongues is required for salvation, then they're adding works to salvation and they're becoming a works-based religion. And that's been fought against throughout church history. 
that we are saved by the grace of God through faith in Christ. And that's not of a work. Faith cannot be meritorious. Our faith is not meritorious. You're not doing a work when you receive what God has done for you. You're receiving a free gift. And he says that is a gift of God. It is a free gift given to us that we receive and receiving it is not a work. And some try to require, turn that into a work. But um, if the APC is saying, that you have to speak in tongues in order to be saved, whoever this APC is, which I don't believe that they are all Pentecostalism. I think that there is, I think that there is, there are a subgroup within the Pentecostal group. And I just need to take a look at that to get a little more, a little bit more familiar with it. All right. So we are out of time. Uh, it's been good being with you guys. Uh, stay close to Jesus. Um, do keep his word, trust in what he said, do the things that the Bible says to do, uh, join us. Uh, so in an hour and a half, we will have a service uh, and we'll have a little bit of worship and then we're gonna have a Q&A with Elisa Childers. And I really look forward to sitting down with her and talking to her about her experiences and what she went through. I love that she is humble. I love that as she writes in her book, she's extremely vulnerable. Uh, there are two books that, that I've read of hers. Uh, it's Another Gospel and also um, Live Your Own Truth and Other Lies. Uh, two good books. Uh, and I love the way that she writes. She writes from experiences in her, in her own life, which makes it very easy for us to be able to accept it. So I love you guys. Stay close to Jesus uh, and study the word of God to show yourself approved and rightly divide it. And, uh, and know that it is our authority by which we live by, all right? So God bless you guys. I'm out. We'll see you, uh, Lord willing, again on Saturday before we get into our study in the book of Luke on the resurrection of Christ, our hundredth study in the book of Luke. God bless you guys. We'll see you later on.